Hey, Kingdom Roots listeners, I want to let you know that several times a year, Northern Seminary hosts an event called Taste of Northern, where anyone can experience Northern classes for free and with no strings attached. The next event will be held this month on February 20th, the 21st, or the 23rd, and you can attend any of the classes virtually from the comfort of your own home. It's a great way to see if Northern is the place for you as you consider further education. We invite you to check out the courses offered and sign up. You can visit seminary.edu forward slash taste and sign up and sit in on one of our classes with one of our amazing professors and learn more about Northern Seminary. I hope you'll check it out. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. My name is Laura Taro, and today on the podcast, Scott and I are going to talk about his soon-to-be-released book he wrote with a student named Cody Matchett called Revelation for the Rest of Us, A Prophetic Call to Follow Jesus as a Dissident Disciple. So Scott, I thought we would get started um, learning about why you wanted to write this book. Why did we need another book about Revelation? And if so, why do we need it right now? (laughs) Do we need another book about Revelation? Well, not another book like the books that we have. I would say, no, we don't need any more uh, books that speculate on who's the Antichrist and what role Israel is going to play in it and how important America is. But um, I have been teaching Revelation, not as a full class, but, you know, a lecture or two for 40 years. Wow. And I I am utterly stunned by the absence of what I think is a major theme of the book, and that is discipleship as yeah. a way of discerning the presence of Babylon in the world and in the church, and at the same time, the uh, proliferation of books that want to speculate. You know, I, when I was in high school, <laughs> and maybe it was when I was in college. Well, when I was in high school, the uh, Left Behind uh, series had never been written. See, I'm 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 before that. <laughs> it was it was at the time Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth, and mm-hmm. I believe that may have come out after I was in high school or about that time. Uh, the Google people can figure out what I think it was like 76 or 77, maybe okay. it was 74. But at the time when I was in high school, there was a, an author by the name of Salem Kurban who wrote a book called 666. <laughs> <laughs> it was a black book, so it was kind of ominous. Uh, and oh, it didn't have even that bold print of 666. But then he wrote a smaller version of it called A Guide to Survival. And it was a book written for people who would find themselves someday (laughs) in the tribulation. And this was their guide to survival during this period and how to believe in Jesus. And and that was the book that I read. Um, Of course, there was uh, a guy named Larkin had a series of of big books of these huge uh, timelines of everything. And my youth pastor in in high school was um, pretty confident in his interpretation of a pre-trib rapture and 
etc. But when I was in college, I believe I came home in the fall, it may have been the spring, for spring break. And my church had a speaker in who was predicting eschatology. And I said to my youth pastor at the time, should, you know, I feel like this may have been when I was in college. I mean, in high school, and maybe it was in college, but it was at that time, right around 1975, 76, 77. I said to my youth pastor, should I even go to college? Wow. Because it was so convincing that Jesus was going to come back because uh, it was one generation after the foundation of the state of Israel in 1948 on the basis of the fig tree parable in Matthew (laughs) chapter 24 and Mark 13. Okay. So this was the the text that, uh, you know, that was going to be at the end of of history or the end of, you know, as we know it. And uh, he said, you know, you better just in case just we're in wrong. case just in just case in we're wrong case. <laughs> I, you know we were talking about this a few minutes ago about the cycle of these kinds of predictions and these these texts that have come out because i was saying even i remember as a kid my parents had a copy of hal Lindsay's the late great planet earth and um, my parents are Wheaton grads. And I remember finding this on the bookshelf and thinking it looked pretty good. And I started flipping through it. My dad saw me reading it and he took it away from me. And he said <laughs> that they they had read it in college as an example of poor exegesis. So he didn't, he said, you should not read this book because it's not accurate, which is just so interesting. But then just a few le- years later, I discovered... Um, this or piercing the darkness, this present darkness, the Frank Peretti yeah. series, and I was fascinated by those. Um, and I, for whatever reason, my parents didn't intervene on that set. Um, and then I remember, you know, another decade or so later, the Left Behind series came out. So, why do we have this fascination with trying to figure out the specific details and imagining? What's going to happen? And why are these all bestsellers? <laughs> that's, that's a good question. Well, because they <laughs> evidently they get to people. But you forgot one in there. Tim LaHaye wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation. Must have been in about 1974 or 5 in which he had graphic images of what the beasts and people would look like. And, you know, and I remember thinking, nobody is going to be fooled by that. <laughs> that image is not going to scare anybody off. And uh, and at the, when I was in college also, uh, there was a huge debate about the rapture and whether it was pre-trib, mid-trib, right. or post-trib. And I became kind of um, um, one of my college, as, as a peer, as a college student, one of the experts among students on this topic. And I read it. And I became convinced of Robert Gundry he wrote a book called The Church of the Tribulation, in which he argued for a post-trib rapture. Wow. So I started reading on that. There's a guy who wrote a book on Revelation called None of These Diseases. Now, he wrote None of These Diseases, but it's called Discern the Times or something like that, mm. S.I. McMillan. But it is very interesting that over time there are various books that just explode into significance, and it's a, there's a bit of a cycle. And I— I'm not a church historian enough, American historian enough, to say that I know this for sure. But I, the way I interpret it is 
they are connected to conservative, American, evangelical, fundamentalist, political, um, political commitments mm. that seem to be totally threatened by the arrival of a different president. So the mm. Left Behind series exploded in the, in the Bill Clinton era when yeah. many evangelicals had experienced what they thought was utopia with Ronald Reagan. And then when Reagan lost, um, well, of course, he was done. He had he'd done eight years. Uh, Bush comes in. And then when, when Clinton comes in, it's like everything they had gained was lost. Yeah. And yeah. that was a sign of the end. Now, so <laughs> if you go back, when I was uh, a high school student, it was the 1960s that was the social disaster that <laughs> provoked these people to write these books, but even more, I don't know how attentive they were to those sorts of uh, social conditions. Those books became so relevant because of those social conditions. So I don't want to give the authors like Salem Kurban or even Tim LaHaye or or Hal Lindsey um, a sort of socio-political uh, astuteness that said, at this time, I need to do this kind of speculative eschatology. But I do believe that the arrival, the, the rise of these books to become so popular was connected to social conditions. Yeah. And uh, they, uh, the Tim LaHaye series with Jerry Jenkins on Left Behind was really remarkable. And I, yeah. know, the, I know an editor, Ed Zonervan. <laughs> who turned the books down. And I was having dinner with him one night with another guy. And he said, he said to us, I told him that nobody's reading eschatology anymore. You can just forget these books selling. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and then, you know, I, who was it? Tyndale. Tyndale built like a warehouse just for yeah. those books. So. I'm not surprised. That's so interesting. Well, you taught a class on this material um, yeah. that that I took with a huge class of students at Northern Seminary. We took your class on Revelation. And I just remember um, students having these epiphanies during the entire class about reframing this text in a way around the ideas of empire, about defining Babylon, um, and talking about dissidents, um, what it means to be a disciple that assumes a dissident stance to, again, over and against empire. And just, it was a fascinating conversation. And to reframe Revelation, thinking about the original context, why was Revelation written? To whom was it written? And what what was the author trying to accomplish through writing the book of Revelation. And it was just, you could see little light bulbs coming on over our heads through this entire class. Um, because I think a lot of us were afraid to read Revelation or afraid to talk about it um, because we were so concerned about, you know, this hyper eschatology, this yeah. apocalyptic vision um, that some of it, we were fearful. We grew up in, you know, the thief in the night era. So we were, we were <laughs> afraid of, of tackling Revelation. Well, you know, the other thing that, I mean, I remember that class, and I could tell that this was going on with students. And um, I think what was disappointing to me in that experience was that the only thing they knew about Revelation had ever been exposed to 
was that dispensational speculative approach, you know, that thought that Israel becoming a nation in 1948 was a part of the eschatological plan. Right. And uh, and then, you know, of course, at that time, it was Russia. Uh, you know, <laughs> Russia was the Gog and Magog. And it was just one thing after another. And people, I still meet people like this who have everything figured out. They know exactly. Right. In fact, last night, Chris and I are walking around the lake. And we ran into one of them uh, <laughs> who was just thrilled that I was writing a book of Revelation. I said, I don't think you're going to like it. <laughs> so um, so uh, he, here's something that I, I think is very important. Um, I often will say to people, every one of these speculations about who is the Antichrist, what date it will be, every one of them has been wrong. Hmm. Now, if you keep what what is the line that if you keep thinking the same behavior you know what, what is the the line if you repeat the same actions and expect a different outcome that's the definition of insanity that's exactly <laughs> what it is this is eschatological insanity to think <laughs> that if okay so now okay it wasn't it wasn't Khrushchev it wasn't uh, Brezhnev it wasn't Gorbachev uh-huh. uh, it wasn't it's not Putin. Um, who is it? Who is, you know? So, and I think that they are failing at the most fundamental level of reading the book of Revelation. Hmm. And the first level, it was written at the first layer. It is written in the first century to churches in Western Asia Minor who are undergoing the world of Rome. And yeah. the writer of Revelation, John, explicitly says this is Rome. Okay. Right. All right, so it, it's about Rome, and <laughs> and probably Nero is involved with some of these these names that are you know the six the six 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 and you know you know who this is and uh, doesn't quite want to say it and could come back to life. That was a story that was told about Nero. So it's it's the first century, but the key is that this book begins with a vision of Jesus, so it's very Christological, right? And then it gets into the letters to the seven churches. And a recent book by a scholar at Calvin, Jeff uh, Wyma, um, contends that these really aren't even letters, hmm. um, that they don't fit the letter genre. They are messages, like little prophetic sermons for each one. And, and I, I, think he, I think he proves his case pretty well. Hmm. Uh, but that doesn't matter. The, the point is, as you read the letter, you see the odd sins that are beginning to show up in these churches. And as you read this book carefully, you realize that the sins in Revelation 2 through 3 map onto the sins of Babylon in Revelation mm-hmm. 17 and 18. And then you realize that it is the encroachment or the invasion of, or the impact of Babylon in the churches that has the author of this book so concerned. Hmm. So you, you, I don't even, I imagine I said this in class because you were in there long enough. Uh, originally, this was one of my um, read the, read the book backwards uh, theory, yes. theories. Yeah. So, you know, I, I worked it on Romans and then I thought I could do this with the book of revelation. I was actually given a lecture in Houston and someone said, are there any other books you would treat the way you do Romans? I said, yes, Revelation, but don't 
don't anybody in this room uh, turn around and use my theory. So I think <laughs> that the way to understand Revelation the best is to begin with the description of Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18 mm-hmm. and realize that what John is doing is describing the utter sinfulness of Rome hmm. and how it's beginning to make an impact on the churches uh, in Western Asia Minor. And I draw on these characteristics. The, the dominant word is domination. Yeah. But Richard Baucom said, uh, absolute power on earth is satanic in inspiration, destructive in its effects, idolatrous in its claims to ultimate loyalty. So Mm -hmm. I'll say it again. Satanic in inspiration. I mean, that's what the book is about. Destructive in its effects. Yes. Yes. And idolatrous, idolatrous in its ultimate claims or its claims to ultimate loyalty. And this is, um, this is what's happening. The Christians uh, in Western Asia Minor are being seduced into living in the way of Rome when they're supposed to be following the way of the Lamb. So it becomes a book about discipleship, and it begins with discerning the presence of Babylon. And here are the mm. eight characteristics. It is, uh, there is a sense in which it is anti-God. For Jews and Christians who believe there is only one God, the book of Revelation reveals that Rome, the empire, uh, the imperial powers— are idolatrous in their understanding of God. And there's plenty of this in the book. Uh, it is opulent. It is. Uh, she was dressed, the woman of Babylon is dressed in purple and scarlet and glittering with gold and precious stones and pearls. You know, this is way beyond Dolly Parton, you know. This is, <laughs> this is, uh, uh, this is more than the fancy, the fancy dressers that you see in Hollywood. This is yeah. Um, a sign of opulence. Mm. And it is Rome itself was at the time uh, the strange and tragic combination of absolute wealth with utter squalor yeah. uh, um, among many people. And so then Scott, is- I'm going to. I'm going to interrupt you here because every time you talk about this, and I wrote about this in my paper, I remember, but I'm not sure you caught the illusion, but it reminds me so much of the Hunger Game movies for our listeners who have seen this because in the Hunger Games, the outer districts send all of um, their material wealth into the capital. So their mines, their forests, everything they they gather up all their wealth and send it into the capital. And supposedly the capital then offers protection to the outer districts. But what actually is happening is the people in the outer districts live in squalor and in poverty and the capital is filled with opulence. Um, There are scenes in the movie where you see these people and just insanely, over-the-top outfits with hair, elaborate hairstyles and jewelry. And there's a scene where um, this couple that had come in from one of the outer districts was in the capital, and they knew their family was starving at home. Their family members were, you know, starving to death. And here they are in the capital, and there were just tables full of food. And one of them was offered more food, and he said, I can't eat another bite. I, I'm just full. And they handed him a drink and said, this will make you throw up if you drink this so you can keep eating. And there's this conversation between these two 
just reflecting on the disparity between the opulence of the capital and the poverty of the outer districts. So when I think now, when I hear you talk about the Roman Empire and what Rome looked like, this is the picture that I have in my head is that scene in the Hunger Games where there's fireworks and castles and, you know, sculpture everywhere. Um, and the people are dressed in these crazy outfits. And, and so it's just Anyway, that's my connection point for when you're talking about what Rome was like in the first century. If if the Hunger Games shows up in this book, it's because of Cody Matchett. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope he I hope he found a way in there. <laughs> so the um, it, you know Petronius has a book called the Satyricon, and in it he has a description, a long description called the Feast of we call the Feast of Trimalchio. And it's very much like this. I mean, the the food, I mean, most people would be stunned at how high of taste uh, the Romans, the upper class of Rome had for food. I mean, they know how to cook quail and they know how to cook snails. And I mean, it's really pretty impressive. So, uh, but opulence is one of the big things. And then it's murderous. Um, Any history of Rome will tell you that, uh, uh, to quote Adrian Goldsworthy, who's a great Roman historian, we can confidently state that over the centuries of Rome's empire, millions died in the course of wars Mm -hmm. fought by Rome, millions more were enslaved, and still more would live under Roman rule, whether they liked it or not. The Romans were imperialists. They call this Pax Romana. (laughs) And it's not peace. It is domination. Yeah. And then the fourth category is Rome is so impressive to the watching world with its image. So how you were describing the Hunger Games would be the people on the outside would look at that and they would just say, what a place. It's amazing. And if you walk there, you would be so impressed. It's like, you know, you get into Washington, D.C., and you get near some of the size of those buildings. Or like a few years ago, Chris and I were in London. And we would, one day we walked 29,000 steps on our oh my uh, goodness. on our walking. So, and we really were, were pretty proud of that day because we wanted to get to 30,000. But included, <laughs> I think we should get it because it included walking to the top of St. Paul's Cathedral up through those wow. stairs, which is yeah. like 500 steps. Well, at any rate... <laughs> You get near Buckingham Palace or St. Paul's and you go, whoa, it's so impressive. That was Rome. And they wanted that. Yeah. Uh, And Herod, you know, he builds the temple in Jerusalem as a Roman agent, agent of Rome, Mm. uh, to be impressive. And Josephus just bragged about how great it was, you know. (laughs) Uh, The fifth characteristic of Rome is that it's militaristic. And, uh, I mean, it is hideous to read Hmm. the descriptions of how violent it's almost it's it's uh vulgar in its violence Hmm. that rome could be to people who resisted their power you know yeah uh just don't resist and you'll be fine and do what we tell you and you'll be fine that's not peace that's domination it was economic sixth was it was economically exploitative and um, the the list of things that now this is what I think you're describing. Um, 
And I often say that John, if it's the author who lived in Galilee, would have known about the Great Trunk Road. He would have known trade that moved from one area, say Babylon or Syria, on to Egypt or from Egypt up, Mm. where stuff would be coming on the road. But John describes in chapter 18, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones, and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, incense, myrrh, and frankincense, wine and olive oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and slaves, and human beings sold as slaves. Wow. That's the um, that's the exploitation dimension of the Roman Empire. And the seventh characteristic I have is that it was uh, Rome was arrogant. Um, mm. In her heart, John says, she boasts, "I sit enthroned as queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn." Isaiah said of Bab- the original Babylon, "You said I am forever the eternal queen." Arrogance is almost like the lifeblood of the Roman Empire. Um, You know, the arrogance sometimes we see in political machinations in the world that we see our own country participating in. This is sort of like the um, major characteristic that leads to domination is Mm. that when you're arrogant, you don't think uh, it's narcissism. You don't sense anybody else's sensitivities and weaknesses and needs. You only sense your own, and you become hardened to it, and it ruins your brain. So these are the character. I I think if we begin there Hmm. with chapter 17 and 18 in the book of Revelation and see the characteristics of Babylon, it's just right there on the text. It's not difficult. Uh, there's nothing speculative about it, okay? So you don't need some special skill in dispensational map making in order to, to catch it. You see these characteristics and you realize this is the problem in the world of mm. evil. And the vision of the book of Revelation is that the church is in the way of the lamb and the lamb is going to win, Right. All right? So no, it's sort of God's team wins. Choose your team. Don't be stupid. Uh, it, it, there's, there's a little bit. Of, that's from Randy Harris. He's a guy in Texas that I heard say that. I thought, that's, that's the book of Revelation. That's, he says that's the outline for the book. Well, the end, see, we get lost in all kinds of craziness about this book, like the millennium, the rapture. There's no rapture in right. Revelation. And the, the point is New Jerusalem is the ideal and... The destruction of Rome is the means that God uses in order to bring in this new Jerusalem. And it's, I often tell, you know, I told your class, I don't know how many times, that you need an imagination to read this book. Yeah. And you need to read it more like the Lord of the Rings. I'm on my third attempt to read it, but I'm in volume two. (laughs) They're on those flat planes and nothing's happened, so I put it down for a while. Uh, now, the question is whether I'll pick it up, because I wonder if I'll ever try again. But it's like it's like the Chronicles of Narnia. It's like mm. any kind of dystopian novel that you read, uh, any any novel that has the great themes of, of tragedy and journey and war 
and victory. And I am so disappointed when people are almost looking forward to some kind of World War III, where yeah. I've been in the valley of what's called Armageddon in, in Israel. There is no way you can get blood up to a horse's neck in that valley because there's too many, there's too many valleys out of it. I mean, it's, it leaks. And, uh, and it's like people are looking forward to that sort of And I think right. that is exactly how we're not supposed to read the book. These are gross graphic images. And, and maybe with our Christian sensitivities today, it's too much. Mm. It's too graphic. It's too violent at times. And, you know, we have to deal with that because if we're not sensitive to that, we're going to miss some of the people who actually are reading this book. But instead of debating about hell and Gehenna and the Valley of Armageddon, we should see this as the means of eliminating evil in the world so that justice and peace and love and joy will rule and you'll be able to have a city that won't even have to close its gates at night because everything is so safe and everybody is welcome who is there. Mm -hmm. So I think that John is trying to convince people that they need a sharper mind to perceive the presence of Babylon in the world, the evilness of Babylon, and to become dissident disciples who resist this way of life and who urge following in the way of the Lamb at all times. So hmm. how would Jesus want us to live here? Not how does Rome make us live? That's, right. the, that's the theme of the book of Revelation. And you would be surprised. Laura, I read too many books, and Cody Matchett read a lot of books as well. He read a ton of books. I, know, I remember that. He was always talking about some new book. He was reading about it. And you would be surprised how few books talk about the Christian life in the book of Revelation or discipleship. Right. So our focus in the book is on dissident discipleship as what John is actually teaching. Now, here's I wanted to call it theopolitical discipleship, but my editor said, no, we don't <laughs> use theopolitical in a book that we want more people to read. I said, okay, all right. So he convinced me. I tried to sneak it in a few times, and he, every time he said, no, we're not going to take that word. But um, I believe, Laura, that the last hundred years in American history has failed the book of Revelation miserably mm. because it is taught a discipleship of escape that right. we get to that we're going to have a rapture and failed to teach a discipleship of discernment that would lead to dissidence instead now we have political Christians who are so politically committed that they don't know the distinction between white Christian America and and the church yeah. and between the uh, between the Republican party or the Democratic party and what God is doing in the world through Jesus. When they line up, that's wonderful. But it's not because one party is the party of God and the other party is the party of Satan. Uh, instead, the party of Satan is seen in Babylon, and we need to become discerners of the mm. presence of Babylon in the church and in the world today. And when we do that, we will be reading the book of Revelation the right way. That's so good. 
All right. So I've got a couple thoughts and a couple questions. So one of the texts that you had us read was written by an African-American theologian about the book of Revelation. And I remember thinking, was it Brian Blount? Was that? Brian Blount. Yeah. 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 Can I get a witness? Can I? Yeah. And I remember thinking this was a really fascinating look at these themes of empire and dissidence um, coming from the experience of oppression and filming or talking about it through that lens of the African-American experience was profoundly moving in many ways and just shed a very different light on it. That idea of um, when you are living under the oppress- the oppression of an empire and how, how, what I think subversive is the word that comes yeah. to mind. How yeah, yeah. do you live out intentional faith in a way that is um, showing your true allegiance despite, you know, the pressures that are on you to conform um, to a certain role that's been cast for you in the light of empire? So, I, do you want to say a few things about that? Well, no, you've said it. That's Brian yeah. Blount, and he's got that beautiful little book, Can I Get a Witness? And he has an amazing commentary on Revelation in the New Testament Library from Westminster. Mm. And he was he was my go-to commentary throughout the whole thing. He he's that's what I looked at first. And along with Craig Kester, who's got the huge commentary from the Anchor Bible. But um yeah, he he says that the the book teaches us to be subversives of empire, not just yeah. subversives for the sake of subversive but for the sake uh, to recognize discerning empire. Yeah, so good. And and yeah. then the other thought, and I remember we talked about this in class probably far too much, but that ways that the church models itself after empire, and this is part of what prompted John to write Revelation in the first place, is he's yeah, watching yeah. the church um, model itself after empire, and he's saying that is not... You, you, we talked about um, the image of Christ being the lamb who is slain and that we serve a crucified Christ. And because of that, we do not, we may not follow the ways of empire in the life of the church, that we are called to be dissidents against empire. So that that discipleship idea, I think, is really critical to understanding this and and we talked a lot about trying to uh, identify areas where the church has become complicit with empire yeah. um, because our class was made up of people who work for churches. I so, know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, it's we like Caitlin, things. Caitlin Beatty's book, you know, celebrities that that's, that's Babylon. Yeah. Uh, arrogance, power, uh, opulence, you know, I mean, all these themes, uh, these yeah. are simple themes in Revelation 17 and 18 about Babylon that are manifest in the church today, in lots of pockets of the church. Instead of power, it should be the way of the Lamb who served, who wins with the word that comes from his mouth, not with a sword, but with the word. Drop the S and you will find (laughs) it. But it didn't, uh, and Brian Brown calls it slammed. And he spells slammed, L-A-M-B, like the lamb. They're slammed by the lamb. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So good. Yeah. There's many things that, that I didn't bring up here that are in the book, but yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I I hope that our listeners, if they're curious and want to learn more, will pick up a copy of Revelation for the rest of us. It comes out, I think, February 28th. Last I checked. Yes. Scott's holding up a copy of. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I've got mine on order. I'm super excited. Although I'm like, I feel like I've already had a lot of these conversations from being in the class. But I think for people who- Once you put it into a book, it all changes, you know? uh, Yeah. It's not the same. They bring order and structure to it, I'm sure. But I think that for folks that have- gotten lost and are scared of the book of Revelation um, and just ignore that part of the Bible, That's right. this might be a really helpful tool um, to, to come back to this the discipleship opportunity that we have learning from John yep. in Revelation. Well, I think that wraps it up for us, but I want to tell you all that we look forward to being with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Thanks so much.